Well, happy Mother's Day to you moms. We are thankful for you, thankful to be able to worship together. Thank you for your care, for your families. We are um, going to look at a portion of scripture that will speak to you, but speaks to all of us. This is not meant to be just specifically a mother-focused uh, message, but I-, I will start with a quote from a child development expert on the role of parents, and this, coming from a secular perspective, said that each parent is, quote, a key co-author in the book of your child's life. And she added this, our interactions with our parents form the crucible for our growth. Through these interactions, we learn what is good and bad, right and wrong, who we are and who we are to be. Now, Again, it's coming from a secular perspective. We might uh, quibble with some of that, differ with some of that. Certainly, we're going to see who we are from God and God's Word. But at the heart of her thinking there is really a biblical truth, and that is the remarkable, powerful influence that parents have. Scripture is very clear that, that with parenting, there is tremendous responsibility in terms of bringing our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to use the influence that God has given us. You need only read the book of Proverbs to to see this emphasized again and again, this role that we have. Proverbs is a father speaking to his son, saying, listen to my wisdom. I want to impart from my experience to you. And so in Proverbs chapter 1, he says, hear, listen, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. In other words, the wise instruction of a parent is to be considered valuable. It is to be like a treasure, like riches. That's what the writer in Proverbs is saying. It's, it's that important. We're going to think on that this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you would turn or scroll to Deuteronomy chapter 6, fifth book in your Bible there in the Old Testament, a little bit of background, Deuteronomy is a pivotal book. If you think about your history of the Israelites, they were captive in Egypt. They were enslaved there for generations in Egypt. God, through Moses, rescues the Israelites, brings them out of Egypt and out into the wilderness, and he is going to bring them into the land that he has promised them. But we know what happens. They become fearful. They become afraid. The God who just rescued them now suddenly is not worthy of their trust as they are afraid to enter this land because the inhabitants look great and mighty. And so they freeze up. And as a consequence of that, a generation spends 40 years wandering like nomads, living in tents in the wilderness, waiting for that day when the Israelites will finally cross over the Jordan and go into the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy picks up near the end of those 40 years. It is sort of, if you will, Moses' kind of last will and testament. It is Moses' sort of last preparation to the people now that this wandering in the wilderness is coming to an end and they are poised to go into the land. Moses is giving them instruction with the idea of now as you enter the land, here is what you need to do, here is what you need to know. And a lot of it is history lesson. A lot of what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy is saying, remember, God is faithful. This is the God who rescued you out of Egypt, the God who redeemed you, who has been with you. This is your God, and you need to know him. You need to fear him. You need to obey him. And so starting in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, his message essentially is, listen, you're about to possess the land that God is giving you, so you best know him and obey him. 
The issue of obedience is not a mystery at this point because God has revealed himself through his law. What has already been given to the Israelites during this time in the wilderness is God's commandments to them, God's statutes, as Moses will talk about here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He has prescribed to them what obedience looks like and given them his law to protect them, to bless them, to instruct them, but also to warn them. The law is there as as sort of the guardrails that are to keep them from straying in disobedience and falling into the consequences and curses that come with that. But God's law, more than anything, is a window into who God is. By reading God's law, we understand the lawgiver better. By looking at the Ten Commandments, we are seeing who the author is and what he deems to be the important things that we must know. And so by the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is able to say, okay, I've reminded you of who God is. I've reminded you of his law. You're about to step forward now, and so now you must choose to obey. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says, I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. So that's the, that's the sweep of the book of Deuteronomy. It's this pivotal moment in the history of the Israelites getting ready to go into the land. The, the name Deuteronomy comes from the, the words, the Greek words for second law. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 17. And in chapter 17, one of the things Moses says is when you get in this land and you ultimately have a king in this land, one of the things that earthly king must do is take the law and make a copy for himself. There must be a handwritten copy that the king, whether or not he writes it himself, which seems to be the indication in Deuteronomy 17, or as a servant, the king is reciting the law word for word so that it is, it is drilling into his heart. He is learning it. He is thinking on it, meditating on it. So that's where that idea of second law comes from in the name Deuteronomy. It's not a second kind of law. It is a, another giving of the law. It is a repetition of the law once given repeating it again so that it would be heard. And as you'll see, repetition is a key part of what we're going to look at this morning. So that's what Moses is doing. Chapters 4 and 5, he is beginning to unfold again the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments. This generation, they had been either little children or not even born when when the Ten Commandments were first given. And so this is now just to, to ingrain in them, to urge them, learn and obey God's commandments. Imagine that you have a a precious, treasured family heirloom, and you are responsible to now pass it down to a younger member of the family. And this this heirloom comes with stories and history, and it is just cherished by the family, and now you're going to put it in the hands of somebody younger, and your fear is that they won't appreciate it the same way that you did, that they won't care for it the way you did because they don't understand the value. And so you sit with them and you talk with them about why this matters and how this was important in our family. And you, you're, you're seeking to instill value as you pass it down. In a sense, that's what Moses is doing. I am I'm reciting these commandments to you so that you will not forget your God, so you will not stop cherishing who he is and fearing him. You must know what he's done before and the law that he's given you. So let me start in Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. 
Moses says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, listen. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. We're looking at this passage on Mother's Day. And some of you, perhaps, are already tempted to tune out. And you're saying, okay, I don't have children. I'm not even married. I don't want children, any of the above. So this, this does not relate to me. So let me, let me relate it to you because I think this is speaking to all of us. And I want to put this under the broader category of generational discipleship. The idea, as Moses is explaining here, of one generation teaching and equipping the next generation, of one generation taking what it has seen and learned about God and what it has learned from God's word and passing that down as a trust to the next generation. This applies to all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. If you are in a generation where you are near the top of the ladder in terms of age group and you don't see an older generation that, that's after you at this point, then you have the opportunity to build into the lives of those below you, to take the years of experience and wisdom that God has given you of living out these truths and then imparting them to those who follow after you, teaching them, living it, sharing with them what his truths are. If you're just about everyone else, then you have a generation that is before you, that is wiser and more mature, that has walked through the valleys more and, and has walked through this word, and you should be looking to them for wisdom, and you have a generation of younger people to whom you should be giving wisdom, to whom you should be seeking to disciple and equip, that they would learn from you and, and seek to grow as a result of seeing God's work in your life. It is why verse 2 says, Fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons. This is generational discipleship. We talk a lot about discipleship. I put at the end of your um, notes there, the sermon notes in the bulletin, two book recommendations that I'll just toss out in reference to this. The one a little bit more parent-oriented by John Younce is called Everyday Talks. It's Starts off based on this premise of Deuteronomy 6, of talking about God in everyday stuff. And then Mark Dever's simple little book, Discipling, just about the nature of what it is to disciple others. And since I mentioned this last week, while the beams were still here, I appreciate people sitting on the front row. So, Missy, I know reading a book is not something in all of your free time. Do your best when you get a chance. I'll, I'll, I'll give that to you and Jeremy to enjoy. And Michelle, since you're in the front on the other side... There you go. There's a copy of Deborah's book. So there you go. That's, I'm not setting a precedent here. This doesn't mean every front row, every week we'll get a book. But from time to time, we'll do that. So I want to encourage you and thank you for sitting up there. Generational discipleship is reaffirmed in the New Testament, in particular Titus chapter 2. Older men, older women are to live out a godly life and teach 
younger men, younger women. It is modeled for us there. Jesus Christ calls us in our discipleship to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And so this is a, a passing down of the trust. So I want to look at this passage in Deuteronomy 6, three points. We're going to break it down into the call, the command, and the commission. And if it's simpler, let me, let me encourage you to think of it this way. There is a command at the heart of this that we are called to internalize, to put into our own hearts, and we are commissioned to externalize, to take and, and bring it into the lives of other people. So a command that we are called to internalize and commissioned to externalize. Let's start with the call. We are called to consume God's word and obey it. That's, that's the starting point when Moses says, now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded me to teach you so that you do them when you go over into the land. And then he says in verse 3, Hear therefore and be careful to do them that it may go well with you. At the heart of what Moses is saying is, Hear God's word and keep God's word. Listen to it. Take it in and obey it. Make it a part of who you are and follow it. The Israelites obviously didn't have individual copies of God's word. All they had at this point was the law. We are only early now in Israelite history, and so what they've got is God's law, and even that, they don't have individual copies. They are relying on Moses and the priests to teach them what God has said, who God is, what they need to know. You and I have God's word. We have amazing access to God's word. We have it on our phones. We have it with us anywhere, anytime. We can read it wherever we are. And we have the opportunity to not only read God's word, but to, to listen to it being taught in sermons during the week. We can read books. Moses is saying here, listen, I have been teaching you. Now you hear it, consume it, and do it. Keep it. Make it a part of your life. Act on what you hear. That's the gist of what these early uh, statements are when he says, hear Israel and be careful to do them that it may go well with you. We, we hear this in the New Testament, right? Not just be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer of the word, James says in James chapter 1. So don't just consume, but then be changed by it. God is not after a, a bunch of scholars with heads full of unused knowledge. He desires men and women who will consume his truth so that it will change them, so that it will be affecting their, their decisions, their motives, so that they will meditate and know him better and, and listen when it's taught so that God's word can, can then be transforming them and how they think about life and how they speak and how they act. Above all else, Consumption of the Word of God should be giving us a grander, greater, larger view of God. As we are taking in His Word, it should be expanding our view of Him so that we hold Him in greater awe. The more that I read this, the more that I see God as creator, as author of life, as redeemer of lost sinners, as sovereign judge over life, as the one who is uh, omnipresent, who is omniscient, who is holy, who is all-powerful, who is merciful, who is loving. I'm, I'm reading these things as I'm consuming God's word. And so it's helping me to see him better, to worship him more clearly as I understand who God is. That's, that's when, when verse 2 says, that you may fear the Lord your God, that could be so that as well, that that is pointing back. 
Moses says, here are the commands, the statutes, the instructions. And we think of commands, we think of, okay, this is all the do's and don'ts. So I do this so that I obey. Moses says, all of this is so that you would be in reverential awe of God. So that when you see his law, you pause and go, this is a holy God who is distinct from his creation and yet loves his creation and has made a pattern for worship so that we can know him. And so this, this God wants to be known by us and reveals himself to us so that we might be in awe of him. And, and so essentially when he says to fear the Lord your God, he's saying that by, by revealing his commandments, God is helping you and I to respond to his truth with a humble awareness of my finiteness and God's infiniteness, my weakness and God's power, my inherent foolishness and God's wisdom, my sinfulness and God's holiness. As I'm going through his law, I'm seeing these contrasts and it's causing me to worship him, to fear him. That's why the fear of the Lord is so important because it is correctly seeing who the creator is and who I am as a created being in the light of him. If you, if you like roller coasters like I did when I was a lot younger, I don't know if I still do because it's been so long, um, then, then you get intrigued when you see a commercial on TV for a new one, new taller one, faster one, more ups and downs and spins, and, and, and it's impressive. Some of you are just saying, no, I don't even want any part of this. Some of you know, you know who you are, the ones who, who really enjoy this stuff. I remember when you used to get to the parking lot and you'd see that, and it, it, was, it was now it was real, and it was impressive, and you were excited, and you got closer, and the line finally got you up there, and you saw how fast it was, and your adrenaline is going, and then you, you start that climb on that first hill, and it is just, you are in awe. Either terror or awe, one or the other. But, but what's happening is as you're moving closer, you're getting a, a more clear picture. You're seeing this thing, and, and, and you're just beginning to, to take it in more and stand in awe of how intimidating it really is. What, what God is calling us to here in his word is to keep drawing nearer to him. It is to see him more clearly so that we see him in his holiness, that we are, we are more in awe of God today because we've seen his mercy in our lives and how undeserving we are than we were yesterday as we, we see this grander picture of God and his majesty. And when we see the the fullness of God, we see that his commands are not meant to be burdensome. They are meant to bring joy. They are meant to bring us into the experience of his peace and his care and protection for us. He wants us to know that he is not only perfect in justice and purity and holiness, but also in love and mercy, so that our response to him doesn't simply stop at fear it progresses on, and in fact, if we read here, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Verse 4 is rich in theology. It is a part of a prayer that Jews to this day who continue to practice this as they prepare for the Sabbath will recite that part of verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's probably two implications that come out of that statement. The Lord is one. One of them is the uniqueness of God. It is a statement of, of exclusivity. 
saying that God alone, the Lord who spoke this, who revealed this, he is one. He is it. He is the unique God. There's not this God and many other gods. There is this God who stands alone as the Lord God, the one who spoke these truths. His oneness means that he alone is God. The Israelites were surrounded by pluralistic cultures, just as we are surrounded by pluralism in our culture. And, and Christianity firmly rejects that, the idea that the, the, the utterly illogical idea, which says, well, all religions and all so-called gods are all just on an equal footing. They all bring good things to the table. That is absurd in terms of logic because they contradict each other at so many points and because Christianity stands and claims exclusively, this is our God. The creator God of the universe is the one and anything else is, is a pretender. It is an idol in man's eyes, but it is not the God of the Bible. The starting point of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing competes with me. There are no rivals. In Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. God makes exclusive claims about who he is. So there's the uniqueness of God. The other implication of verse 4, the, the Lord is one, is also the unity of God. His oneness emphasizes that he is one in purpose, in promises, in plans. God's purposes don't shift. He doesn't alter his plans. His promises don't vary and, and, and shift over time because the Lord is one. He is unified in purpose. Now, this is not a challenge to our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one God, and there is perfect unity within the Godhead. The greatest evidence of that is his redemption of sinners. The plan orchestrated by the Father, the plan executed by the Son, the plan applied by the Spirit, all working in harmony to accomplish the redemption of lost sinners. And so he is one. He is one in purpose. He is one in nature. It is indivisible in personality. He is, has revealed himself, that the God who has revealed himself thousands of years ago is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the key for us, though, verse 4, the, the theology of verse 4 is then meant to be the basis of verse 5. This is one of those, exactly one of those instances where as you read about who God is, it should prompt a response in us, and verse 5 is the command. This is the second point. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What we know about the uniqueness and unity of God should prompt us to love God, should drive us to this whole being sort of love for God, loving him with all that we are. Jesus, when he was questioned by Somebody who was trying to trick him in Matthew 22, it says in the passage, it was a lawyer who was seeing if he could trip Jesus up, said, teacher, what's, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus Christ answers in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Throughout Deuteronomy, Moses is urging the Israelites to understand and obey God's law, to fear him and obey him. And here Jesus is saying, do you want to know the essence of obeying him? It is to love him. It is to love him with your heart, 
mind, and strength. Loving God, then, must be at the core of our, our thinking, our feeling, our willing, our doing. In other words, loving God should be prompting questions in us. Is what I'm doing right now, is how I'm interacting with my spouse or my child right now, is how I'm dealing with my boss at work, is how I'm commuting right now, is, is this a reflection of my love for God? Can you see that I love God by the way that I'm speaking in this moment? Because that's what it means to love him with our whole being, heart, soul, and strength. Love throughout scripture is not... It's not a mere sentiment, it's not a feeling, it's not a song lyric, it is, it is active sacrifice. God's word describes that love is something that motivates us to action. It prompts us to do that which is sacrificial for someone else. And so love throughout scripture takes the object of our love and raises that one's concerns and desires over our own. That's, that's what biblical love looks like. It, it puts a focus on the object of that love and seeking to meet the needs of the object of our love, even over, and, uh, even over our own. 1 John 4 tells us that love originates with God. Our capacity to love, our ability to know what love is, can only come by the grace of what God gives. And, and, and the picture in 1 John 4, if you were to take the definition for the word love, the picture next to it in, in God's dictionary would be Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's what he says in 1 John 4. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He says, this is love manifest. Here, here's the visual of what it looks like. It is Jesus Christ given for you, suffering for you. God did that. He sent his son. And we know this. He did it not because we were lovely, because we did something that was more attractive than other people. He did it even when we were enemies of his. We, we are opposed to him. We are hostile to him. And God initiates love toward us. God chooses to love us and sends his son to suffer and to die in our place. Now, the, the great command for you and I is to love God with our whole being so that our, our speaking or our silence, our action or our pulling back from a situation, our sacrifice, our stepping out, whatever it might be, should be rooted in love for God because we love God. That's why we're doing what we're doing. That's at least what he's describing here when he says to love him with the whole, whole being. That becomes the answer to the why question. Why do I do this? Because I love God. Most of us instinctively understand what it is to, to have whole being love because there are people or things or activities or places that we've, we've had deep love for. The, the, the things that, that we wear, the t-shirt of the, the place or the team, the, the thing that we post on, on Instagram, the photos of the place that we just love, the, the thing that we love to talk about, the thing that if somebody interrupts us from getting it or enjoying it or the person that we want to be with and something interferes with it, that we, we get frustrated because we understand what it is to love something with our whole being. And what he's calling us to here is that kind of love that because we have taken God's truths to heart, because we've consumed them and seen who he is and what he's done, then we respond with gratefulness and hearts that, that love him, that seek to serve him with our whole being. So the call 
is to consume God's word and obey it. The command is to love God with our whole being. And now the commission, which is now the externalizing of all this. Verse 6 again. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So God's commission is simple. Take what you've internalized. Take the truth about God that you've read and consumed, the fear of God that you've come to as you worship him in awe, your love for God. Have that not just reside in your heart. It should be there, he says in verse 6. But now take it and externalize it. Teach it. Live it. Show it. Bring it out in your life so that others see it, particularly those who are younger than you, particularly that next generation. Show them what that means to know God and fear God and love God. If something is deep within you, if it's within your heart, it will show, right? It'll, it'll come out in some way. That's what Jesus said in Luke 6 about the words that come out of our mouths. They are the abundance of what's in our heart. And so if evil comes out of our mouth, it's because evil's what's in us. If goodness comes out of our heart, it's because God in his grace has put goodness in our hearts. And that is now what's flowing out of us and in our speech and in our actions. And, and we are uniquely commissioned now because of what we know about God and because we, we've learned to fear him because of what we know about him to now externalize that. And here's how we do that. This is where, this is where I, I, I want to encourage again. This is generational discipleship. I don't care if you're a mom or dad or not this morning. This is not just for parents. This is for all of us as believers. This is what we're called to, to, to find someone who is younger in the faith and who needs help and, and do this. Engage in their life and help them. And, and so the, the phrase that I would give you, and it's not in your notes, and it's not, I don't have a slide for it. You just have to jot it down because I think it's right out of verse 7, is frequent repetition. Frequent repetition. I say it again, then I make the point, right? Frequent repetition. I think those two words are buried right here in verse 7. When he says, you shall teach them diligently, that phrase, you shall teach them diligently, is the English translation of a single Hebrew word. The Hebrew word initially meant, originally meant to sharpen something. Just had that sort of trade use. It was meant to sharpen a blade, to sharpen a knife. Now, so how do we get from to sharpen something to teach them diligently? Because in the evolution of the world, of the word, what is seen is that this sharpening takes repetitive motion, right? You take the smooth stone that you're sharpening the blade against and you swipe it across and you do it again and again until you sharpen the one side of the blade and then you turn it over and you, you swipe the other side and it's this repetitive motion that keeps it sharp. So the word came to, to signify that sort of repetitive nature to something. If you want something to be sharp, and useful, then it must be this ongoing, diligent work to sharpen it that, that involves repetition, involves saying and doing some of the same things over and over again. You don't try once or twice and then just give up. I had a, a, a mom say to me during the break, doesn't this just resonate, parents, that, that we, we all get to that mentality of, do I have to say this again? And now I think scripture says, yes, we actually do have to say this again. It's calling us to understand that when it comes to proclaiming God's truth and discipling the next generation, we do have to repeat because we know that as, as, as sinners saved by grace, we need God to repeat his truth to us. How many times do we need to have our thinking 
shaped and then reshaped and then we're back again. And it's like, here we go again. And I've got to read this passage again to be at peace and to rest in God, right? We come to church Sunday after Sunday and we, we make the teaching of God's word the focal point and, and, and you can listen to, to sermons and you can go to home groups and podcasts and all of that is meant to bring about this kind of repetition so that God's word would, would get into our hearts deeply and shape our thinking. That's why memorization of scripture is so valuable. It, it, it is just, it is taking God's truth and reciting it over and over again because we are seeking to develop a kind of sharpness that comes from repetition in God's word. So here's the deal when it comes to generational discipleship. The wiser and more mature believer um, should know... As you deal with that wiser and more mature believer, let me put it this way, you should be inviting that person to speak into your life often and even to say the same things that they've said before. If we're going to, if we're going to do this and we're going to walk with Christ, we need to have older, wiser folks that we invite them to even be repetitive into our lives and to say, hey, um, I think you're back in the same spiral here. I think you're back in the same struggle again. And, and remind us of scripture that we've been reminded of before. Because we need that. And, and in the same way, when it comes to my discipling someone else, I, I shouldn't expect that to be just sort of a hit and run one time thing where here's a book, read the book. Now you got it. You're mature. You're on your own. We know it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way with our children. That sometimes that's all that God gives us is limited opportunities. But if we have the chance for frequent repetition, not only is repetition here, but the frequency is seen in verse 7 when he says in this passage, you, you should talk about this when you're sitting in your house, when you're out walking by the way, when you're lying down, when you're rising up. This sort of conversing and repetition about God's truth should be a part of everyday life. It should be happening on a regular basis. We should be frequently repeating these things because that's what makes God's truth indelible in the heart is when it's talked about and applied in good times and bad times. When we bring God's truth to bear on situations that seem pleasing to us or seem distressing to us. And, and we have that person who lovingly brings God's truth during suffering or prosperity. Whether I'm engaged with family at home or whether I'm in the workplace, God's word is repeating back these things to me. Our deep love for God should make the Lord a frequent topic of conversation. This is how, this is how God directs this generational discipleship in Deuteronomy 6. Put it in your heart by consuming the word, meditating on it, thinking of who God is, being in awe of him, and then talking about him, applying those truths to all sorts of different circumstances that come up in life, thinking through the, the decisions that we have to make and the complicated situations and the disagreements we're in and thinking through, what are the implications of the gospel for this? How can I show grace in this? How can I love God through this, and then love my neighbor? How can I serve them in some way? Take where you are right now. What, what's going on right now? What's going right and what's going wrong and what you're dealing with? How is that influenced? How is that changed by the holiness of God, the saving work of Jesus Christ, and the indwelling presence of his spirit in your life? 
that should be affected in some way. If those things have no influence whatsoever, then you need to come back to the, the heart of the gospel and trusting in Jesus Christ because those things should have implications for wherever we're at and whatever we're going through. How does your love for God that happened by him loving you first, how is that love affecting the way that you're talking to the, the people around you today? How does it affect when you get in the car and you're driving home and your child does it again? And you're going to stop this time and you're going to go, wait, there's some blessing in this frequent repetition thing, right? We're going to repeat it again, but we're going to pray for God's grace to help bring it to life a little bit more this time. And know that we're probably going to have to repeat it again because God in his grace is constantly repeating these things into our lives. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Fear me and love me above all else. Trust me and pass that along. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in gratitude for your son, Jesus Christ, in gratitude for the saving gospel. Lord, thank you that we who did not come into life seeking you, but came in seeking our own pleasure, our own rule, that you in love and mercy sought us and saved us, gave us life in Christ. We thank you for that. Thank you for your, your lasting patience that we see in your own repetition. Lord, we see it in the Israelites. The, the, the very front row seats they took to the, the miraculous deliverance out of the nation of Egypt, and yet in such a short time, fearfully overtaken by mistrust. Lord, we're not all that far along from them, and we can see it in our own lives. Where we see these truths and we know them, and then we, we get afraid, we get anxious. Thank you that in your grace and your patience, you are kind to repeat these things to us in all of our stages in life. Help us this week to love you, to cause others to see our love for you, not because we're looking to be the center of attention, but because we want you to be, because we want them to see the object of our love. Help us by your Spirit's work in us to be a people who would know you, fear you, love you, in a way that would speak volumes to the next generation about the greatness of our God. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ alone as Savior, would you bring them to yourself? Would you open their eyes to see that Jesus died to take the wrath that sinners deserve, that he rose again to offer eternal life to all who will trust in him? Thank you, Father, for the opportunities before us this week to apply these things. Help us to be diligent about seeking discipleship and to be diligent about seeking to disciple others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.